Cooking to me is giving. I'm not very good at, I couldn't be on the floor. I'm hopeless at yeah, talking to people. Um, but I give through what I put on a plate. And this is what Beckett's is to me, where it, it's a vehicle, the building gives to you when you walk in. I've had so many people just say they walked in and you've forgotten where you are. You could be in anywhere around the world. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. One of the beautiful things to re-emerge over the last few years is the humble bistro. Once the cornerstone of the restaurant industry, a great bistro relies on classic dishes, a warm inviting space and stellar staff to create the very essence of hospitality. Few do it better than today's guest. Jeff Schroeder is the chef and co-owner of Beckett's in Glebe. Jeff, how are you? Good, thank you. It's good to get you on the show. Uh, you've opened in a, a suburb that's had a lot of hit and misses over the years in Glebe. What's what's things like there for Beckett's? Well, it, I wasn't anticipating opening in Glebe. It kind of chose me. I was looking, I was chasing a restaurant in the city and I missed out on one place and then this one just fell in my lap to say, go and have a look. So I did. It was shut for a year and a half. So I walked in and it just kept me there. It just gave me a hug when I walked in the door. Well, there's some uh, real amazing restaurants that have that have opened in Glebe and some interesting buildings as well. Tell us about the space and what attracted you to it. It's um, uh, it's not historic, but it's made of sand, um, sandstone. It's been um, it was a church abbey that burnt down in the back laneway, and it was reclaimed all the sandstone, all the arches from the church, all the stone, and the person that owned the building was a dentist. And he loved eating all around the world. And he decided, well, he didn't actually know he decided, but he ended up building a restaurant with all that reclaimed stone that was in the back lane, using the same stonemasons that were cleaning up the, the old church site. So it took 12 years, 13 years to build. We still haven't got the full story um, of two master stonemasons. And it was dug out. It was all dirt. So it was dug out. That's extraordinary. And what did you have to do to turn it into, you know, what we see today with Beckett's? Well, it was built purposely as a restaurant. It was Darling Mills back in the 90s, 80s, 90s. And it was a, it was a famous restaurant because it was one of the first paddock to plate restaurants. And they still have their farm where they're growing all the micro herbs or all the lettuces and all that for all the top restaurants in town. And it's called Darling Mills. And they're still at the markets. Um, so they're still going. So I was actually up there two weeks ago to visit their farm. Well, uh, that paddock to plate ethos is a real feature of, you know, not just this venue, but your whole career. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and what you're doing where you are in regards to that. Well, it comes about because I grew up in the country. I grew up in the town of 600 people and it was all farmland. So... Back when I was born, you didn't have supermarkets, you know, ready, available. So you grew everything and you um, ate everything that you had. And someone could grow beautiful tomatoes and you bartered with them with pumpkins or eggplant or whatever. And then chickens and lamb and cattle. 
And so you just ate what you grew. And that was the whole ethos. So I haven't known anything different from that. Seafood was a bit hard to get because we're landlocked. Do you remember any sort of particular feasts um, or, or dishes from when you were growing up? Um, most definitely. Um, so, uh, when the fa- so I come, I have 52 first cousins, so we come from big families. Um, so whenever there was a 50th or a wedding or a 21st and all the families get together in a homestead somewhere on a Saturday night, and so all the aunties will be in the big homestead kitchens cooking and they'll be on charcoal fires still in these big cast iron ovens on the homesteads. The men will be out roasting a whole lamb or a pig on the spit, um, drinking beers. And as a young kid, I'll be running around their legs in the kitchen and all just around the food. But what rubbed up, licking the spoons and all that and just looking up over the counters and just watching what they were doing unbeknown to me at that stage of why I liked food. It's just, it was the energy I liked. It was rubbing off on me, but it's a sense of occasion because when the, and when you sat down, big tables just full of food and people were just laughing and eating and carrying on. Um, and I think that's what rubbed off on me was this, cooking was a sense of occasion. What was it like for you when you first started um, cooking for real in a, in a kitchen and began your career? It was interesting. I, I was a carpenter when I first left school. So I did my building apprenticeship. I was a carpenter and then um, the building industry collapsed and that was in the early 80s. And being a country boy, I said, oh, I might just drive to Brisbane. There's a beach there and, you know, do have a look at something else. So my, my cousin and I, we packed up and just drove in an old EHU, went to Brisbane and found there was no beach. <laughs> but that was the start so we said okay what do we do so I was just working out what I wanted to be from there it was a good time to reevaluate, and I thought I'll give food uh, uh, as a passion I'll try food so I went and applied found a job in a cafe in the city and just to see if I would like it and then started hunting around all the best restaurants in Brisbane to work in um, to get an apprenticeship Tell us about where you landed and, and the sort of really important venues and, and people you worked with early on that helped sort of create the path for you. Yeah. So um, I ended up finally getting a apprenticeship at a restaurant called Restaurant Baguette. It was a French restaurant. Um, it was on Racecourse Road in Hamilton and it was there for about eight years before I come along and the head chef was called Max Matter and he was also a teacher at TAFE at the uh, where you did your um, schooling for cooking and the reason I loved it is because of his personality. He was kind, he was giving, he shared and he would help you because as a first year you knew nothing so he knew, nurtured you and I found that was very important to always work for someone that you respect, or otherwise there's no use working. And so working for him gave me a great grounding, even though you know I was uh, a novice, complete novice at it. He had time to actually work with me. After you started your career and, and worked with him, what, what, where did you go? From there, I went to the equivalent of the Opera House in Brisbane. It was a performing arts centre. I went there, it was a new place opened, 
the head chef was Kiwi, but he'd travel all around the world. And it, so, again, it was, again, the experience of working in a bigger kitchen, a newer kitchen, and doing different things. We're doing the, uh, just like the Opera House. And um, But, again, they were very helpful in your learning and understanding. So I finished my apprenticeship there. And from there, I then traveled to Sydney and got a job with Serge Dancero at the uh, Region Hotel. And so I was there for uh, roughly a year. So it's the first time I'd come to Sydney. So I drove down, thought, well, why not give Sydney a go? <laughs> well, what were your thoughts on, on Sydney at the time compared to what you were used to? Uh, well, again, it's another step up. Serge is a brilliant at my chef, but a brilliant person. And again, and the people in there, Ditmar Soy was also the executive sous chef, which went on to do his own thing then. So you, you're working with these people at the skill level, but there was a properly run kitchen. The stress level was just to work on the food. It wasn't to do with any politics. It was just, it was food orientated, just do the best you can and um, improve as you go along. So it was, a not, it was a good kitchen to be nurtured in. Do you have any stories of the influence that Serge uh, had on you? Um, just his calmness. And it, you go to the chef's office for a quick chat and then he'll have time to chat to you. You know, and there'll be other chefs running around, um, but you'd have you'd spend time just to say hi, how things, you know, if you're all right. Um, I've come across Serge years later when I came back to Australia, and um, again, he's still the same personality. Of you know, he, he's very nurturing and just a nice guy. You mentioned um, that you left Australia. Tell us about that period of time. You sort of um, travelled all around the world. What were some of the really um, big moments for you that helped shaped you? Well, from the region, I actually went back to the Gold Coast. It was called the Gold Coast International. And there was a, another head chef there called Herbert Klinkenhammer. He was a German, tough as nails, brutal. My first interview, didn't get hired, didn't like me. I didn't fill out the application form correctly. Um, I think it went to a resume. I put C resume instead of filling it all out on the piece of paper. So that's how tough he was. And I went, oh, shit, I don't want to work for this idiot. But then I found that he has a reason for doing things. And when I spent I spent about a year and a half with him, and yes, he was hard, he was tough, but he was also brilliant at what he did. And as a young kid, he wanted to make sure that, you know, I didn't step out of line too much. And it was just a way of running things. But while I was there, I always had the bug to travel. And this opportunity, I applied six months ago for, I heard this through a Swedish friend that when she arrived, she came on a container ship and it's a Wilhelmsen container ship that travels around the world, takes four and a half months to do a round trip. And so I applied six months uh, earlier and then forgot about it. And then one day they rang me and said, are you still interested in traveling overseas? And I said, yes. And I said, well, we have a container ship in Sydney in six days' time. And there's position, there's a space for you if you want to get on. And I went, holy shit. Um, so I went to the executive chef and said, this opportunity's come up. And he went, take it, which I thought was quite astounding. But, you know, um, he said, no, take it. You need the experience overseas. Great way to get over there. So I hurriedly packed up 
everything I had, drove back down to where I grew up, dumped my car with my brothers or my everything, all my possessions, and then got back to Sydney to hop on a container ship that I had no idea where I was going. Um, the container ships are interesting. There's probably about 36 people on there. There's the um, the uh, Norwegian crew. Then there's a Filipino um, deckhands and then the Indian engineers. So it's kind of like nationalities and different things. And they travel this world. They're two weeks behind each other just traveling around four and a half months around trips. And I hopped on there going, I have no experience at, at the ocean, no idea what I'm doing. And I was on this container ship leaving Sydney heads and going all around the world. So, so um, went through all everywhere through Japan, South Korea, all the way from East Coast to West Coast of America. Um, spent 11 days straight at sea, was the longest trip. Um, luckily, we missed all the storms. Um, went around a cyclone um, in Singapore, I think, things like that. But um, it, it was an eye, wasn't it? What was, what was the food like on the ship? It was brilliant. Well, then the then the captain found out I was a chef, so we had two Indian um, cooks in the kitchen, brilliant cooks, and but he was Norwegian. He loved you know Western food, and so he found out I was a chef. So then he worked out okay, instead of just being a deckhand, you know, repainting and so forth, he said you hop in the kitchen and cook me some food. So I was making scones for him, and I was. Cooking when we got to um, uh, Miami, we were a day early, so he the sent the crew in to pick up thirty six lobsters, live lobsters, and bring them back and get me to cook them for. So we had an in ground swimming pool and you know, on the deck, so we um, set up. They built a barbecue and we cooked the lobsters on the barbecue. I made all the dressings and salads, and so he could live, you know, eat um, that food as well. Take us on, uh, you mentioned you, you sort of visited all sorts of countries. Um, do you have any sort of highlights and experiences that influenced and shaped you as a chef while you were traveling? Well, I was traveling, and I was just absorbing. You know, you, you try, live prawns hopping off your plate in um, South Korea was interesting. You know, it's the first time. So the crew used to take me a, a, on shore when we were at, you know, at anchor. We'd, we'd stay from 12 hours to three days at port. And then the crew will be working, and then they'll take me in town to their favourite places um, and show me their food and so forth. So it was a great experience just to see how all the cultures work together without knowing where you're going. I didn't have to plan a thing, uh, thank goodness, because I wouldn't know what to plan. I just tagged along, and they protected me and looked after me. So it was great. Um but the food, yeah, food's good wherever you go. It's just, you know, the experience of absorbing it. So I went over, hopped off in London, uh, completely broke, spent all the money on the cruise ship, um, and then uh, went to, knocked on the Savoy door. Three interviews later, I started uh, two days later and started working at the Savoy. So I stayed there for a year, a year and a half, and then I went to um, Switzerland. 
There was people I used to work with back in Brisbane, did the Expo 88, which is the Swiss Pavilion there. He had a restaurant back in St. Gallen in Switzerland. They come over to London, invited me to come over to Switzerland. So I went there and worked there for six months, traveled for six months and worked again for six months. I had a combi van, cruised all through all through, and ended up in Cyprus with a cameraman from the BBC that I knew. Um and then back to Switzerland, and then from there to New York. So I stayed in New York for a while before coming back to Australia. How different were those kitchens and experiences compared to, you know, the beginnings of your career in Australia? They were similar. The Savoy was the hardest kitchen I ever worked in in the world. It, um, it was just physically demanding. It was physically tough. It was confronting. It was um, physical fights between chefs. Um, When you have 60 chefs in one kitchen, there's things that break, and that's usually people. Um, The mise en place, you spend hours and hours on mise en place. It goes missing from the communal cold room. You've got to hunt around. Butter and cream was like... um, liquid money to get something done from another section if you have cream or butter and they they don't have any it's like a bargaining chip so you learn to stand for yourself and before i was always didn't like confrontation uh, but the savoy taught me that sometimes you have to stand up for yourself um, it was brilliant food. It was very classic. It was You can still see Escoffier's ovens in the banquet rooms. Um, that sense of history in that place was immense, working on the Strand. But then, yeah, but then I was spending 18 hours a day in the kitchen, 16 to 18. So you didn't get to experience much life outside of the kitchen. You mentioned that um, from Europe you went to Manhattan, um, how different was that and what, what sort of experiences did you have there? Yeah, well, Manhattan was just completely different to London. Everyone knows that. It was just go, go, go. It's just you didn't know if you are safe. Living in Manhattan itself was brilliant, but you just didn't know if you are safe or not. You know, as a kid from the bush, you just don't know what's right, what's wrong. You just have to keep your head down and just, you know, look like you've been there all your life. <laughs> and then people will leave you alone. Um, I end up securing a job in the, the, a fashionable hotel that was the head of the town at the time, which was a Royalton. Uh, it was an Ian Schrager hotel. I used to own um, Studio 54 in the heyday and things like that. It was the first boutique hotel in the world, funnily enough. This is where they come up with the boutique hotel concept, and Ian Schrager was the first pioneer of that. And so the hotel didn't, you didn't have many windows looking out. It was in mid-Manhattan, high-rise, but it was all built internally. And this is where all the fashion and all the models and all the celebrities and the movie stars like to stay because it was secure of peace and quiet. And it was just uh, like an underground hotel of these particular people. And it, so it was an eye-opener. You're feeding celebrities all the time and you didn't even know it. But um, the stories you hear, it was just brilliant. So it was an eye-opener of the wealth of Manhattan as well as the food. We could we could spend a lot of money on the fresh produce and, the, uh, and just put really good food on a plate. And the chef was 
brilliant in his own content. He was the first American to make a senior sous chef in a French restaurant around the world or something like that. So uh, he's on TV. His name's Jeffrey Zakarian. He's been on uh, MasterChef there and so forth. But his technique was taking the classics and then making them lighter or making them fresher. So you weren't using as much butter or much cream. And you're in light making the, the main ingredient um, really stand out. And that's what rubbed off for me a lot. So when you eat salmon, instead of having a cream sauce like the Savoy used to do, it was a lemon and olive oil sauce. And you had crushed cucumber. And so all those flavors lifted the, the heaviness of the, the fat of the salmon and, and cleaned it right up. And all of a sudden, I tasted salmon for the first time there. Uh, compared to everywhere else in the world, when I ate that dish, I said, I have to learn more. And that's why I stayed so long. You mentioned uh, working there, you had to cook for lots of celebrities. Do, do you have any stories um, of yourself of cooking for celebrities? Um, well, Madonna was part owner of the sister hotel that they built down Miami, which was the Delano Hotel. So it was on Main Beach. Ian Schrager designed it. Where the Royalton in New York was dark and kind of velvety, Miami was all white. You woke up in the morning, the only color in the place was you and an apple on the wall, a green apple. Everything was white. You'd wake up and think you're dead. You'd go, shit, what happened? I'm dead. Um... So it was built the opposite. Madonna was a part owner somewhere in the hierarchy of the whole thing, but she had a birthday coming up. So she booked out the whole hotel when it first opened. And she would have had 65 guests there, um, blocked it all out, security all around. It was for the weekend. And she flew in four chefs from all over America of, to cook her favorite dishes in each of those places. And I was one of them. They flew in to do her salmon dish that we used to do at the Savoy, uh, at the uh, Royalton, I should say. And so I was down there for three days to cook one dish for 60 people, which took probably six hours work. Um, so I was having a great time because when I flew in, the head chef took me to um, a, a tobacco shop, rolled back the big fake door, and it was just full of Cuban cigars. And I've always wanted to try smoking Cubans. And so he picked out four different cigars and we went back, sat around the pool at Miami at the hotel and um, smoked cigars. Wow. What did you take from your time in Manhattan? Um, the, oh, the, everything can be achieved in Manhattan and everything can be busted in Manhattan. So, um. It, it, you can, if you do it, you can get, you can do anything in Manhattan illegally, um, but you can do anything if you're persistent enough. Um, so I've seen so the, the people involved in this hotel, a lot of very talented people in different positions. One is general manager, one is owns a restaurant, one that built the hotel, the designer. They're all individually brilliant at what they do. And it's combining the brilliance together to make a product, which was a hotel, which, which taught me a lot. It's like not one person can do everything. 
So you've got to find that brilliance from other people as well and just you've got to have the same page to work on to, to make something bigger than each individual. Was it hard coming back to Australia? Tell, tell us about that, that move back home. Oh, yes. It was, it, coming back to Australia was it slowing down again. Um, the pace was far different. Um, the food was stepping back again in time. Um, and it, I just had to bide my time and just work on getting back into it. I was probably not that good of employee when I first come back because I had my own opinions and working for different people were uh, clashing slightly. Um and so I just had to learn to kind of scale it back a little. What did you do when you first arrived back? Where did you work? Um, I worked at called The Edge, and it was Gary Skelton was uh, a sous chef at the uh, Regent before I left, and he was a head chef back at The Edge. It was a pizza joint um, and Riley Street um, that um, was doing brilliant pizzas, but then also doing other food as well. And so I got a job there for a little while just to ease back into, or not ease back, but just try to see, but it wasn't enough. So then I ended up at Bistro Moncur with Damien Pinole, which was uh, brewing again, just making your own boudinoir, making your, um, all your sausages and so forth. And it was working back in a nice, great bistro kitchen that was always busy. Good chefs in there. Um, and it was nice to still try to ease back into it. The food wasn't what I was doing in New York, but I was, again, learning. You always learn something. So working with Damien was brilliant. Damien's influence over many decades has been extraordinary, and that continues on with the Josephine Pinulay Award for the Next Generation. Do you have any stories of what it was like working with him? Um, it was more after, about 10 years after I left there, we for a charity event there was a caviar um, prize and people bid for it as for a charity and so then Damien it was part of Damien to turn up at someone's house to actually do a caviar tasting and I was involved with the chefs to work with Damien to do it as well so it was a cross promotion kind of thing as a as a charity prize so i got to work shoulder to shoulder with damien again 10 years later and that was so because i was probably too young and naive when i first worked with him uh, that uh, i after some more experience and where i knew where i fit in the world of things for food wise and all that that it was nice to just share moments with him in that kitchen while we're just cooking caviar and doing different caviar dishes for this particular prize. And that was more rewarding for me then, meeting him 10, 15 years later. You spent time at Bayswater Brasserie as well, one of the most important restaurants in Sydney's history. Uh, what was that like for you? That was kind of... That, that was taking a kitchen that was needed to revamp itself again. Uh, it was kind of a bit tired. Um, so I was put in there. The The chef that was running it walked out as soon as I walked in, which put me on the back foot straight away. I had to then rehire straight away and work out what the hell we're doing um, and re reinvent everything without losing its soul. 
Um, it's the first time I hired, uh, put an ad in, this chef walked in, hired him straight away just by his personality. And this gentleman's with me now at Bayswater still. He comes and go, does his own thing. And then when I opened Bayswater, he said, no, I'm back in there. Um, brilliant, brilliant man. But um, it's also where Bayswater taught me how to drink, meaning meaning Charlie Ainsbury was in the bar, which is one of Australia's best barmen back back then. But he instead of you don't drink it, sir. So you don't. It, it's watching him make a cocktail and said, "Now try this," and you can taste the nuances of that cocktail by him explaining it. Taught me that there's a lot more to it than just having a margarita or having a martini. And so Bayswater taught me how to drink properly, which then combined to put it with food. Um, so it, it, it was interesting. I, I didn't know at the time either, but it, it, Charlie taught me how to drink properly to, so I could eat properly. And that was interesting because you know, I was just used to wine with food, but not a cocktail and or pre or after. And so it really rounded out the experience of food for me, which is interesting. You've been involved in so many um, restaurants and projects and all sorts of things. What's been the real sort of standout for you sort of in the last decade with what you're doing that's um, sort of steered you in the direction you've gone? It was, um, well, I was open chicane, which was a little restaurant off Oxford Street. It was a big little restaurant. And as a head chef, being able to cook what I was taught in New York to actually have a place, to a vehicle to actually start experimenting and putting it on for Australian palates was quite a change for me. That was where, okay, the passion started to come out. Um, but it took oh, 25 years before I really knew my own style. Uh, and, and so I went through a, a Couple, a few different restaurants. I had another one in the city called Eat City. I had it for three years before the building was sold, um, where I was doing French yumcha, where it's where you've got a whole list of items on the menu, and you just you, know, you could have two people, you can have ten people at your table, and you just choose. We'll have the prawns, we'll have the scallop, we'll have the pate, and I'd make for 10 people and they'll be sharing. So it'll be shared concepts. So it'll be someone had to play mum and serve. And it usually, it was great for business meetings to watch the boss actually serving their guests and so forth. And it was quite interactive for them. So it was a bit of a uh, scaling back of the classics. It was just more easy and uh, for the customer. And so was the wine because we could then, use a lot of variants in wines we could use a lot more aromatic wines than just a straight chardonnay and the red wine um we can bring in a lot more variety and so the sommelier floor manager was getting so excited with that as well and it was a great concept and this is what i was planning to do with beckett's funnily enough until she tricked me the building and uh, yeah, so but this is where I was coming into my own again. So I could put on things that I wanted to play with without having it 
be perfected, if that's the right word. I didn't have to have it down to its finite brilliance where it's, a lot of restaurants have to because that's what you go for. This They could forgive me for saying, well, I'm working on this dish and they'll give interaction. So, well, maybe with this or maybe not with that and I'll be listening to them. And so it was evolving all the time. You mentioned it took quite a while to um, find your own voice on the plate. Tell me a little bit about your food and maybe through a dish or two that sort of exemplifies your cookery. Oh, good point. Um, see, I, I can't define my food. I let other people do that. The reason is I don't want to put a definition on it. Um, what I do love is when my supplier says, look, I've just got this, or the fa- duck farmer comes and he's got these um, spatchcocks or squab, and I'm going, okay, let me work on that. Um, so I have a squab dish I particularly love, and then it's with root, sautéed root, but and so you cook the whole squab on the bone, and then you cut it off the bone and just finish searing it so it comes out pink, the breast is pink, the legs cook properly. Um, but it goes on a root vegetable of, of say, um, parsnip, of celery, uh, carrots, and so forth. But you cut up rhubarb and put that in at the last minute. And you saute the, the, the each uh, root veg with um, a little bit of vanilla bean. Because the vanilla, the rhubarb, the root vegetable for the grounding, and then you've got the richness of the of the squab, which is like um, a stronger duck. And then you've got the natural juices coming from that when you put it on. It, the combination of flavors just go wow because you've got the acid, you've got the root vegetable, you've got the vanilla, and the earthiness. It, it just all works together. And that's quite interesting to me. The one I particularly like, would just remind me another one, is uh, foie gras I, I do. We invented it in uh, the Royalton by accident. Uh, it was a Sunday night. We ran out of, usually we'd caramelised figs or grapes or something like that. We had nothing left in the fridge. And we ha- the only thing we had was strawberries. We're going, Jesus, what are we going to do? And so we poached strawberries with uh, bay leaf and rosemary in a sugar syrup and then roasted the strawberry to reheat it and then reduce the syrup to like a glaze. And you sear the foie gras, put it with the strawberry, put the glaze with it, and then use an aged balsamic. And so the simple thing is you got fat from the foie, you got the acid from the balsamic with a slight sweetness, and then you got the sweetness from the sugar syrup and the strawberry, and it's just a match made in heaven. It's just, it's phenomenal. It's, it could be a dessert. It could be a starter. It could be in the middle. Uh, it just works. It's a combination that is just, to me, is simplicity on a plate. You've been involved in so many restaurants, but did you open Beckett's, you know, during one of the most challenging periods of time for the industry and everyone on the planet as well. Um, what's it been like sort of, opening a restaurant during this time yeah it's uh it's you just don't know what's coming um it, it was interesting so i saw back it's during the first lockdown i walked in and just went okay looked at all that we call it the bones of the building the restaurant food into food out to garbage out kind of thing you look at what it takes to actually move food around 
in a restaurant. And it was all there. It was built properly. And I went, thank goodness. Um, because most places aren't. Um, and the re- that frustrates me a lot because you have to add more labour to actually try and do good food in a badly designed restaurant. You can't do actually good food in a bad restaurant in design-wise. Um, that stops you from doing good food. Um, so back at – I walked in and it, it was just there. So I kept said, okay, and I just went, well, bugger it, give it a go. I didn't want to think too much about it because the more you think, the, the more problems you come up with. And But I knew walking through without any tables and chairs, you could feel there was enough space in there, even in an uh, environment where you've got to be four metres apart. We could still do you know, a good number of seats to make, the, to make the overheads work. And so I just said, right. And then I thought I was going to do French yum char again. That was my concept. You know, I thought, you know, Glebe, it's in the suburb. Maybe they don't want fine dining. I don't want to do fine dining. And so the first night we opened, we are busy. But the thing, before we started serving, is the first time I'd seen the place with the lights on at dark and fully dressed, with the tables dressed. And I just, I, re- I remember this vividly. I walked out of the kitchen because I was busy prepping for two days and I had people setting up the restaurant. I had the designers there, my business partner there, and the place is finished. And I walked out of the kitchen and looked at the restaurant and went, shit, it's dressed up. I went, my food's wrong. Completely wrong. My whole menu is wrong here. But I had to do it. Lucky it was a private event. We were just doing friends and family. But that night I had to go home after serve and I had to change the whole menu that night. And because my wife laughs at me. Because um, six months were there reshaping the place and there's an entity there. I call it a – there was a – uh, a ghost there and she kept haunting it stalking everyone and she would argue with me on you know that light won't work or you know, things would happen that just be quirky but all the other staff that I had some skeleton staff there were all shit scared to go downstairs on their own because that's I, they reckon that oh she's in she's down there things were happening and I said no she's all right my wife to this day says yes she She's been there a while. She was looking for someone like you to come along, redo the place, and then she tricked me by she dressed up and put heels on and lipstick. And that's that vivid memory of walking out the kitchen and seeing it fully dressed. And I went, shit, I've got the wrong food. She's dressed up. And that's what I mean by she dressed up on me. And so I had to go back and say, okay, now I have to rework the food to make it fit the environment we're in now. And and to so w- when I go to a restaurant, when I'm looking at a new restaurant, I don't know what food I'm going to do. It tells me, but this one really shouted at me. And since I've changed all that, she's left me. She's gone now. Either she's resting in peace, or she's just she's left the building. It's quite interesting. Your your business partner is playwright and director Wendy Beckett. To what's what's the dynamic like between you two in regards to running the restaurant? Uh, interesting. Um, <laughs> she she likes a show and theatre, 
<laughs> whereas I liked practicality and organization. So uh, there's a contrast of the two. So we, we have different nights where downstairs she does a, a theater vignettes where she's got a famous actor or actress. They come in and do 20 minutes in between a four-course meal, and that works really well. So it's like live theater. They're sitting around, and she's performing right there on something that's either at the Opera House or Belvoir or so forth. So that gives her creative passion, where and, and also where I'm feeding feeding them so it's dinner and show but it's more yeah dinner and show but the show's quite 20 minutes so that's good for her and then upstairs is where i'm just rolling with what i can find from the markets well uh, it's amazing what you've created there what, what do you love about what you do the sense it goes back to my childhood it's a sense of occasion of cooking for someone cooking to me is giving I'm not very good at – I couldn't be on the floor. I'm hopeless at you know, talking to people. Um, but I give through what I put on a plate. And this is what Beckett's is to me where it, it's a vehicle. The building gives to you when you walk in. I've had so many people just say they walked in and you've forgotten where you are. You could be in anywhere around the world. You know, you forget the outside. It's quite interesting when you walk back out after three hours or four hours and you walk back out in the street, you go, holy shit, <laughs> I mean, reality again. Um, so once they come in, it disarms you from your worldly troubles and then it lets my food be able to sustain you. The food, and but yeah, it, it makes my job easier which is a nice thing to have for a building. I don't have to catch up and make up on when they, you know, they kind of relax walking into the place, which is nice. Well, Jeff, I know we've only really skimmed the surface on your incredible uh, career and congrats on what you're doing at Beckett's. Um, please keep in touch and um, we'll have to catch up again soon. Most certainly. It's lovely talking to you. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>